It's the 8th of April, 2022. Hi, I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This is the Room Now podcast, which is this month focusing a whole lot on psoriatic arthritis, our campaign, PSA all the way. Hopefully you've been watching it. Today we're going to talk about fibroscans in RA, hip injections in OA, and quotes to live by from COVID. Let's start with a Corona registry. Wait, it's now called the Corvitus registry. And this actually looked at psoriatic spondylitis, what we now call axial psoriatic arthritis. 173 patients, and they looked at those who had six months of therapy with either a biologic DMARD or a targeted synthetic DMARD, mainly a JAK inhibitor, and they looked at spine outcomes. Guess what? Not so much, meaning the needle didn't budge very much on things that we usually measure as spine outcomes in spondy patients. In this case, it's a psoriatic spondy patient. They looked at ASDAS 40, BASDI 50, spinal pain, didn't really budge the needle. Um, there are, we're going to have to look to other therapies to do that, and there are several that are being developed. Interestingly, they also looked at HLA-B27, and did that influence the outcomes? Not at all. 31% of the patients in this cohort were B27 positive. So you want to see a good lecture on axial psoriatic arthritis? Philip Meese did a great one for Room Now Live. We're going to post up in the month of May. Look for that. Um, Ducravacitinib, a novel TIC2 inhibitor that's in development for psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis. Again, their results were published, a phase two trial of 203 PSA patients who were randomized to either placebo or the active TIC2 inhibitor. And guess what? The drug beat the placebo. It's supposed to. At week 16, the uh, TIC2 inhibitor response were 53% with the low dose of 6 milligrams a day or at the higher dose, 12 milligrams a day, 63%. And that was double the placebo rate, which was about 32%. Not much in the way of surprising or new side effects here. Um, we're going to see more development of ducravacitinib and maybe other TIC2 inhibitors in the future. Uh, another psoriatic arthritis study looked at what's the differences between your exam and the ultrasound. And um, some of you do ultrasound. Um, my estimates are about 15%, 20% more in academic centers. But um, turns out in this particular study, 155 patients, 5,600 joints were examined. And overall, the exam showed a TJC of 18.5%, tender joints. An SJC of 9.8%, almost 10%, were swollen. How does that going to compare to the ultrasound? Um, not quite the same. The um, GS scores greater than 2 was seen in 20%. Power Doppler signal greater than 1 was seen in 5%. There's quite a disparity. Barrett um, comparison here when you look at ultrasound. It may have greater sensitivity, it may have greater specificity, but how is it going to relate to practice? You know, there are studies that say that if you treat the target, you'll do better. There aren't studies that say if you treat the target to an ultrasound or MRI outcome that you'll do better. That turns out not to be true. Now, that's not what's being studied here. This is just showing us that there are big differences between the ultrasound and the um, joint exam. And that needs to be taken to, into account when we're looking at this kind of research. 
Um, another big issue that we're talked about, talking about this past week was obesity in psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In this one particular study, that 1,000 patients, 37% had obesity. What was the impact of obesity? It was wide and prevalent and really dominant. Um, PSAQOL, the psoriatic arthritis quality of life score, uh, anxiety scores, depression scores, DAPSA and DAS, both activity measures, BASDI, BASFI, HACK, and FACET, a fatigue measure, all significantly worse in those who had the one-third of patients who had obesity. So BMI clearly affects quality of life. It affects depression, if not anxiety, and disease activity and fatigue in a big way. Um, if you're treating psoriatic arthritis, you need to be treating obesity as well. I've had a lot of questions recently about the use of FibroScan in patients with RA who have LFTs, who may have fatty liver, who are on methotrexate. And obviously, the FibroScan is being advocated by the GI guys as a measure of liver stiffness and fibrosis and may have predictive value in patients who are pre-cirrhotic. So we know in RA, the chance of cirrhosis is really, really low. And this data I'm going to show you says don't do a fibro scan. It's not going to help you unless they got big time liver problems. Maybe in psoriasis where the risk of fibrotic liver disease is higher, um, we'd like to see this being done. But I'm not showing you that. I'm showing you a study of 520 patients who were screened with fibro scan. They looked at F3 or F4 liver fibrosis by fibro scan, only seen in 13% of controls and 13% of arthritis patients. Methotrexate use was not associated with higher FibroScan scores. And then overall, liver stiffness scores were correlated with obesity, waist, being male, and age. RA patients that are higher risk of NFALD, fatty liver. Not a gigantically high risk, but a higher risk. Because fatty liver is related to inflammation. It's also related to obesity, diabetes, a few other things. But inflammation is a big driver of fatty liver disease. So, and again, I, I wouldn't do FibroScan. I'm not, I'm not doing it, um, but I'd like to see more studies of it, in, especially in psoriatic disease. Alemtuzumab is a monoclonal antibody against CD52, a pan T-cell marker. It was developed back in the early days of biologics. I think Mike Weinbach did one of the earliest studies of anti-CD22 in RA. And while it may have worked as an anti-T-cell approach, it was associated with um, refractory cytopenias. Larry Moreland did the study. Mike might have been on there too. But refractory cytopenias, and it was dropped and never developed. It has since been around and been studied in different conditions. It's been shown to work to some degree in um, inclusion body myositis. But in this particular study called the Alleviate Study, I don't know why they're giving it an acronym when they only got 23 patients treated. Um, it was a small pilot study in refractory ANCA-associated vasculitis and Bichette's. I don't know why they included Bichette's and ANCA-associated vasculitis. I don't view those as being close at all. Bichette's is a small vessel vasculitis. ANCA-associated vasculitis is usually a medium vessel vasculitis. I don't know. Anyway, nonetheless, they did show that 16 of the 23 patients, <clears throat> or 70%, had a complete um, or partial response. Pretty good. That's 26 complete, 44% um, partial at six months. SAEs were 10 out of the 23, 30%, uh, all sort of SAE being serious adverse events. But we're talking about sick patients here. 
um, maybe this merits further study in Anca-associated vasculitis or even refractory Bichette's, as we'll get around to later. Um, low back pain and interventions for low back pain. I know you've seen some of the studies that come from different societies. Um, you know, pain drugs these days are kind of dirty words and narcotics and tramadol and nonsteroidals and what are you going to use? Well, this meta-analysis looked at psychological inter- interventions, 97 trials, 13,000 patients. And in the end, after all the if, ands, or buts, uh, only behavioral therapy when combined with physiotherapy, structured exercise, was able to significantly and reproducibly reduce pain intensity in patients with chronic low back pain. There's a big lesson there for you practitioners. A nice study looked at 200 plus patients who presented to the emergency department with a hot swollen joint, trying to figure out how you could figure out who has septic arthritis. So in this cohort of over 200 patients, you know, 28 had septic arthritis, 32 pseudogout, gout 50, 100 were other kinds of inflammatory arthritis. Predictors of septic arthritis, threefold higher risk if you had RA. Threefold higher risk if you had a coexistent skin infection, breakdown of your number one barrier to in uh, to inflammation and infection is your skin. Um, liver disease, a ninefold increase, it's actually a tenfold increased risk of chronic if you have chronic liver disease. Knee involvement, a threefold increased risk, and again a threefold increased risk if you were on background immunosuppressors for having a septic arthritis. So. Those are people. Now, in my opinion, you know, I, I'm going to really worry about septic arthritis when it's one joint and it's acute, meaning less than six weeks. And if I tap the joint and it's murky and the white blood cell counts greater than 30,000, ah, it's on my list. More importantly, look at the differential on the white blood cell count. When the differential shows you a poly count, a neutrophil count that's greater than 85% of those white blood cells that are in there, you have a much higher risk of infection, septic arthritis, also gout, uh, and less so for RA. Okay, news on the COVID front. This week, the FDA granted a priority view for tocilizumab, also known as Ectemra, the IV form for its treatment and use in hospitalized COVID pa- uh, patients who are on steroids who require supplemental oxygen, ve- ventilation, and or uh, ECMO. Um, and, you know, right now this is under um, an EUA, um, an emergency use authorization, but obviously the company's going forward with this. But given its widespread use, it's become the standard of care in patients who get hospitalized. That's why you can't get it in the clinic for you rheumatology kind of people. Um, but again, this is one of at least two, maybe three drugs that are going to pan out to be big time players in averting disasters in uh, covid IL-6 inhibition, what's next? Baricitinib, clearly better than remdesivir. Colchicine and IL-1 inhibition may play a role, especially early on in the disease, probably not in hospitalized ICU patients. Um, speaking of COVID, the New England Journal had a, a, I'm sorry, JAMA had an interesting review of antithrombotic therapy, antithrombolytics in COVID patients who are hospitalized um, and after their review, sort of a meta-analysis, they said that basically hospitalized COVID patients should be receiving some form of heparin-like anticoagulation. Right now, there is no proven benefit to other antiplatelet therapies. 
And why? Because it is the hospitalized COVID patient who's at much higher risk of all kinds of vascular events from, you know, venous thromboses to myocardial infarction to brain events, etc. cetera. Uh, again, a lot of these patients have a lot of autoantibodies running around and there's a strong vascular component that goes with the damage of severe COVID. The authors of this paper started out by writing a quote from famous cardiologist from the Brigham, Bernard Laun, where he says, do as much as possible for the patient and as little as possible to the patient. Those are words to live by. Um, an interesting tweet I found this week from Eric Topol was, uh, and he follows the numbers really well. If you want to see what's going on with the um, pandemic and COVID, just follow Eric Topol on Twitter. He points out that the trend has been over this year, early in, in the last six months, a strong dominant shift towards the vast majority of infections with COVID being due to this new BA2 variant, which uh, has even a less chance of hospitalization and death than does the um, other, where, where the previous variant that we were worried about. Um, right now, that makes up about 72, 75% of all new COVID patients, COVID patients in the United States who are hospitalized. Uh, I found very interesting, I've been following the Vasculitis 22 conference going on in, I believe, Ireland. Um, a lot of good tweeting going on about this Vasculitis 22. Look up vascula, hashtag Vasculitis 22 and you'll see hundreds and hundreds of tweets of the proceedings of that meeting. Um, uh, Richard Conway had a nice tweet about 15 ANCA-associated vasculitis patients who had been treated with rituximab and then went on to receive one of the mRNA vaccines for COVID-19. Uh, uh, and interestingly, he points out that even though these people had had two doses of the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine with no response at all, when they received the booster, seven out of the 15 had a significant response to the booster, even though this happened in the face of B-cell depletion. This is important because if you followed the story about vaccination and B-cell inhibition, you would have known prior to COVID that in Hodgkin's lymphoma patients who need to be vaccinated, it's well known that if you've just given or are about to give a B-cell um, monoclonal antibody, that you're not going to get um, a humoral response here. But if you need to get a humoral response here, you give a booster and then you give another booster and you follow whatever you're going to follow to see that you actually had an immunogenic response. Here you can follow, um, you know, spike protein antibody levels uh, as one measure. If you have someone who needs to be on um, rituximab or B-cell inhibition and that's your first priority because that's the disease that's going to kill them first right now, but you're still worried about them being covered for SARS-CoV-2, you can give the vaccine, but then, you know, do the two doses. And then I would wait like maybe to month three, give another booster and month or two later, give another booster till you start to get a response. Again, the protocols have been laid down, laid out for us in patients with lymphoma. Uh, there was an interesting report about intraarticular steroids injections being done under ultrasound. Um, this is 199 patients with uh, hip OA who <clears throat> were randomized to either receive uh, intraarticular lidocaine or intraarticular lidocaine plus triamcinolone. All, all, all injections were delivered under ultrasound guidance. 
And while they made a case at six months that the steroid plus lidocaine group was somewhat better, the results were not significantly different. When was this significantly different? At two weeks? At two months? Maybe at four months, there was a significant difference and improvement in the steroid plus lidocaine group compared to just lidocaine alone. And it was really dramatic if you look at the graphs that are on the paper and then in our, our note on Room Now. So this says that intraarticular hip injections have no long-term benefit, but if you need a temporizing measure, something to hold the patient over until they can have more definitive therapy um, or other therapies, then intraarticular therapy, intraarticular injections are good. But remember, you don't want to do intraarticular injections in someone who you're going to soon do surgery on. Um, the surgeons would like to say less than three months from intraarticular injection to time for surgery. There are some studies out there with knee injections that says that you need to be off the steroids for more than six months, but at least three months. But it is a tool that can be used sparingly. I'm going to end with a discussion of dactylitis. There's a nice report about dactylitis um, being a much more severe indicator of um, PSA activity. Uh, and it was looked at in this cohort in many different ways. They did ultrasound in these patients as well as exams, and it was by itself an independent predictor of more swollen joints, higher CRP levels, um, and then synovitis and erosive damage even. So again, it was important to note that synovitis was seen in only 54% of patients who actually had dactylitis, that was synovitis by ultrasound, that is. And again, such patients had more severe disease. So dactylitis is a, is a bad, bad player when it comes to bad, bad disease with psoriatic arthritis. I'm going to end with another Bernard Nalown quote, which says, Some of life's biggest and most positive changes are propelled by many conspiracies of a few well-meaning folks. This applies to what we're trying to do with our PSA campaign this month. We're putting out a lot of information. We're hoping that a few of you well-meaning folks will take it upon yourselves to rethink our strategies, move the needle forward, and improve how we think, diagnose, and treat psoriatic arthritis in the future. You can go to the website and check out these citations and more. We'll talk next week. Next week, we'll have um, calls from you, the listener.